Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is God's word. Maybe seated. And if you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll keep them open to John 11 as we begin our time together in his word uh, with prayer this morning. Uh, God, we ask that as we seek you this morning that you would make yourself uh, abundant in our midst, that by your Spirit we would hear your voice with ears that you give us to hear and eyes to see your face. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would be at work in uh, this time that we have together this morning. Accomplish in us all that you have in mind to accomplish, and we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Often, when disaster strikes, there is one thing that people usually do not want to hear. I remember when I was in seminary, my 
pastoral counseling professor, advising us that when we sit down with people uh, who are going through hard times in life, who perhaps have lost someone that they love or who have been afflicted by some illness themselves, that we should be careful to not say certain things, even if they are true, because in the moment, they can do more harm than good. Specifically, he was talking about the expression, everything happens for a reason. When grieving a loss or a tragedy, often those words can do damage when we mean them to heal. They can cause hurt and be received as a glib attempt to minimize the pain that people are feeling. A meaningful example of what my professor meant was published in the Wall Street Journal in December of 2004. Five days after the third strongest earthquake that has ever been recorded in human history struck the Indian Ocean. It was such a tremendous release of energy that it caused the earth as a whole to vibrate. At every single point on the, on the globe where seismological equipment was set up to record uh, or, uh, a tectonic movement, uh, there were recorded tremors. And scientists estimate that the whole earth shook back and forth by about half an inch. And, uh, you know, half an inch may not sound like very much, but if we're talking about moving planets, it's pretty impressive. Within seconds of the earthquake's uh, occurrence, tidal waves were headed for shorelines all around the Indian Ocean, and within hours, over 220,000 lives had been lost. Afterward, the world mourned and was unsure of how to comprehend what had just happened. And a columnist for the Wall Street Journal wrote these words. When confronted by the sheer, savage immensity of worldly suffering, when we see the entire rim of the Indian Ocean strewn with tens of thousands of bodies, many of them children's, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. The columnist did not want to hear that everything happens for a reason. To him, it was a blasphemous suggestion that hurt more than it could possibly help because any God who would allow such pain could not possibly have any good ends to justify such a tragedy, and he would certainly not be a loving God. It's a timely consideration for us because as the world fights a pandemic which has claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in every country, we wrestle with the same things. And perhaps this is the way that you feel now or have felt in facing grief of your own, in your own life. Words that were intended to bring comfort actually made your pain more acute. But as we'll see in John 11 this morning, Jesus has words that actually speak to the severity of our pain with hope that brings true and lasting comfort. In each of the three sections of this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus surprises us by responding differently than we might expect in order to reveal his glory, his love, and the salvation that he came to offer. At the opening of this chapter, John 11, we are introduced to three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who are evidently close friends with Jesus and with his disciples. So when Lazarus comes down with some unidentified illness, they send word to Jesus in verse 3. The sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
The urgency in their message is implicit. This is no common cold, no mere inconvenience to Lazarus. Unless a miracle occurs, Lazarus is going to die, and they know it. So they send a messenger to Jesus, begging him to come. They know that he's healed people in the past throughout his ministry, and now they need him to come quickly. Hearing the news, Jesus tells his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Jesus is saying a couple things here when this messenger arrives. First, that Lazarus' illness does not end in death. He is going to die, which Jesus knows already. But the story will not end there. That will not be the end of Lazarus. And secondly, this is happening for a reason. Jesus will reveal his glory in what is about to take place. Now, we might read these words here and sense some carelessness on Jesus' part, as if Jesus heard the news of his friend's sickness and shrugged it off, making some trite platitude about how God is going to make lemonade from these lemons. But that could not be further from the truth. John has made certain, he's made very sure in his account of this scene that we do not go there and make those assumptions about Jesus. Twice in the opening verses of John 11, We are reminded that Jesus loves Lazarus and his family. And later, when Jesus arrives at Lazarus' grave, he will weep over Lazarus' death. Jesus truly loved these people, and he was truly sad that they should endure such pain as the loss of a brother. John wants us to have that in mind as we read on. And so he notes in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John wants to remind us of that because in verse 6, that love will dictate what happens next. And that's important for us to keep in mind because Jesus does not respond in the way that we might expect him to. If you were to receive a message that someone that you love was sick, in the hospital, perhaps even facing death, you would jump in your car, you would jump on a plane, you would do whatever it takes to get there. You wouldn't wait for permission from your boss to leave the office, you would just go. You wouldn't say, I need to stop by the post office on my way, i got to pick up my dry cleaning on the way. You would drop everything to get there. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, John tells us he does nothing for two days. And John makes the reason for that inaction clear in verse 6. Jesus loved them so He stayed where he was for two more days. The reason for his delay was his love. What are we to make of this? It's counterintuitive. It defies our expectations about how love typically acts and responds to this type of scenario. And for that reason, this verse has sometimes been translated a little bit differently than what we had read for us a few minutes ago. In some Bibles, this verse reads, He loved them, yet... He stayed where he was for two more days, or but he stayed where he was for two more days, perhaps as just a way to avoid the awkwardness of Jesus' inaction, as if there were some pressing matter that he had to attend to first. Otherwise, he would, he would go right now, but he's got to do this first. It's like we're trying to explain away the fact that Jesus doesn't go right away. No. The Greek word here 
It has only one meaning. Jesus loved them, and because of this, he stayed where he was. It's a detail that carries some significant freight. And not only for the events of John 11, but for all people who follow Christ, who look to him in hope and who face hardship and suffering in this life. Because the love of God does not come with a promise that we will not suffer. Instead, it comes with a promise that all our suffering will always serve God's good purposes for our good and his glory. There is a common assumption in the world that if a person lives a certain way and honors God with his or her life and is loved by God in return, then he or she will be blessed with good health, with prosperity, and with answered prayers. But if that's how it worked, if that's how this always worked, then surely Jesus' friends like Lazarus would be spared life-threatening illnesses. People like Paul and Peter and the other apostles would be protected from imprisonment and abuse and shipwrecks and rejection. And believers like Stephen would be shielded from stones that would ultimately take his life for talking about Jesus. And Jesus himself would certainly not have suffered and died. As the narrative of John moves forward, this moment right here in chapter 11 anticipates the ultimate example of God's work through suffering. No one ever lived more perfectly, honored God more faithfully, or is loved by God more deeply than Jesus Christ himself. Yet, Jesus will suffer. He will endure great pain. He will be executed in a manner reserved for criminals and those considered less than human. The love of God does not guarantee freedom from hardship and pain. If we assume that it does, then we will be dismayed and confused when it does come into our lives. Jesus' love for Lazarus meant that he would wait for two days, and it guaranteed that Lazarus would suffer and eventually die. And we would rightly say that Jesus is hardly loving at all, except for John's repeated reminders that Jesus truly does love this man and his family, that he will weep for Lazarus's suffering. And the conclusion that we must draw, that there must be something even better that Jesus intends for Lazarus and for his family than if they were allowed to avoid such pain. When God's providence is bitter, to borrow an expression from John Piper, when God's providence is bitter, it is always for our eternal good. It is always born of love, and it will always reveal his glory. It does not mean that the path forward will be easy. It certainly was not for Lazarus, but it means it will always be worth it. The treasure we receive in Christ is greater than if we had never had to endure the pain of mourning or catastrophe or illness. So, Jesus waits for two days. He does nothing. Afterward, he tells his disciples that it's time to go to Bethany, where Lazarus' family lives. But this moment draws some concern from the disciples who remember their last trip south. Bethany is only about two miles from the city of Jerusalem, and the last time that they were in Jerusalem, people had literally picked up stones to murder Jesus where he stood. And so they say in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? 
You're seriously going back there? Bethany's only a short walk from Jerusalem. So they figure if they go, that Jesus will be attacked. It's not an irrational fear that they have, but that is exactly what it is, fear. And there are a few ways that we might assume that Jesus will respond to their fear. He might echo the words of God to Moses, who was afraid to go to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, and so God said, I will be with you. He might tell the disciples that God's strength is sufficient by reminding them of the words of God in the book of Isaiah, do not fear, for I will be with you, I will strengthen you and help you. He might have reminded them of the words of Psalm 46, written during a similarly life-threatening situation in which the psalmist declares, God is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in time of need. He might have used any of these passages or countless others to encourage them, but he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's an interesting response to their fear. Ancient Near Eastern timekeeping broke up the daylight into 12 units, regardless of what time of the year it was. So in the summer, the days, when the days were longer, hours were actually longer, even though there were still 12 hours of daylight. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. But how is that an answer to their fear? How is what Jesus has to say here an answer to their fear? It's certainly a cryptic response. I think the answer lies in Jesus's rhetorical question. He's using daylight as a symbol. In daylight, people walk with confidence. They're sure-footed and unconcerned. At night, especially in the ancient world, nighttime was full of uncertainty. Without flashlights or street lamps, you had to worry about what might lay in your path. Jesus is not actually giving a lesson on timekeeping, obviously. The disciples are aware of how many hours there are in a day. So here's what I think is happening. The fact that Jesus asks this question at all suggests that the disciples are acting as though they've forgotten how many hours there are in a day. They're acting as though night has fallen and they are surrounded by darkness. In concern for their safety, particularly for Jesus's safety, uh, it's like they're walking around at night. They're unsure, unsteady, and weary of unseen threats. Jesus is not unsure. He is not unsteady. Night is coming when the disciples' fears will be realized, when Jesus will be seized as they fear that he will, but it will not come until Jesus allows it. His response to them echoes his own words in John 10, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In essence, it will be daylight until Jesus says otherwise, until he lays down his life. No threat from Jerusalem can change that, and the same is true for those who follow him. Jesus' response to his disciples reminds them and us that no trial that we face can disrupt God's providential plans. 
Jesus alone has authority over his life. No one will take it from him, but a time will come when he will lay it down. Nothing can interrupt what God intends for his people. Just after saying that, that no one can take his life in John 10, Jesus says of those who follow him in John 10, verses 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is no power on earth that can stand in the way of what God intends for his people. There is no one and nothing that is stronger that can rip them, that can rip us out of God's hands. And so, in essence, Jesus says to his disciples, take heart. It's a comment that reminded me of the words of John Patton, who perhaps you've heard me mention before. He was a missionary who served among a hostile people group on an island in the South Pacific in the 1800s. He knew that he was walking into danger the day that he first stepped onto the island, and he was often reminded of that danger. And one notable example of that is a story he tells in his autobiography when he was threatened by a native who had a loaded gun. It was, of course, a shock to Patton, but not so much that he would rethink his calling. And so he wrote in his journal, I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me until my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal until my work was done. John Patton's confidence is amazing to me, and it reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples here. Until God's plans for them were through, and not a moment before, they were functionally immortal. There was no power on earth that could have changed that, no scheme of Jesus' enemies, no devilish plot that could have disrupted all that God intended for them and to do through them. We can take comfort in knowing that the same is true of us. When we face difficulty in this life, we can know that it is not because God has turned away from us or given us up to it. Nor is it because some evil plan has overcome God's love for us or his providential plans for our lives. For the disciples, this meant that they would be safe during their time in Bethany. They could walk confidently as, as though in bright daylight, knowing that no one could rip them from God's hands. As the leaders of the church in the first century, they could face opposition for the sake of the gospel, knowing that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And when the day came that each of them faced arrest and imprisonment and abuse and martyrdom, they could do so knowing that God reigns over all and that nothing happens that God does not ordain to serve his good purposes for his glory and our good. Life in this world is hard. None of us will live free of pain. Jesus does not make that promise. But we can walk confidently in the daylight knowing that no misfortune has disrupted God's loving plan for our eternity. Of course, knowing that does not make life easier or the pain we feel less acute. In this passage, the pain is heightened by what we learn from Jesus in verse 11. Jesus knows that Lazarus has died, and now the time has come to begin his two-day journey to the town of Bethany. 
He says in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. He says this because, as Thomas makes very clear, there's still a lot that the disciples don't understand. We can see that with his resigned comment, let's, let's go also that we may die with him, in verse 16. They don't understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Clearly, Jesus is planning to use this moment to teach them something and to nurture both their understanding of him and their faith. But Jesus is also acknowledging the harsh truth that he could have prevented Lazarus's death. It's something that Mary and Martha know very well. When Jesus arrives in the town of Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And when he does arrive, there are crowds there who have come from Jerusalem to mourn with this family. It's a very somber scene. Mary and Martha are devastated, not just by the death of their brother, but also by the fact that Jesus did not come in time to save him. Days they waited, looking down the road and hoping against hope that they would see him coming. But the hours passed and Lazarus got worse and worse, and Jesus did not arrive. So when Martha hears that he is finally coming, she goes to meet him outside. John doesn't record any greetings for us, no welcomes, no small talk. She simply says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's distressed and grieving, and she's hurt. And even though she doesn't directly accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, she does express her disappointment. You could have done things differently. And she's not wrong, of course. She and her family know very well that Jesus has prevented death often during his ministry. He has healed the sick and fed the hungry and given sight to the blind. She knows that it would have been easy for him to heal Lazarus. So she is devastated by the fact that he did not do it and that he didn't arrive until it was too late. Isn't that exactly the way that we often feel when something like this happens? We pray, hoping against hope that God will heal, that he will deliver, that he will grant faith, that he will protect someone that we love and knowing that it would be so easy for him knowing that he has the ability and the authority and that he's done things like this before. Knowing that, as his people, we love him and we are loved by him, just as Lazarus and his sisters were. Knowing that if he were to grant a miracle, as he has throughout the Gospel of John, that people would turn toward him in faith. And so we say, why wouldn't you do it this way? We know what it feels like. For those, that, for, we know what it feels like to cry out to God and for the answers to those prayers to be no, to wait for a miracle that does not come. We know what Martha is feeling right now, and odds are we're going to find ourselves in her shoes again someday. So we do well to pay attention to this scene and to prepare for our next season of grief if we aren't already there. First, it's important to note that Martha has clearly not given up her trust in Jesus. She says in verse 22, but even now 
I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Where else could she go? Lazarus was dead. No doctor or medicine could help him now. Her only hope is Jesus. She isn't sure how things can be set right, but she knows that the one who can do it is Jesus. It's a bit like the scene from the book of Genesis in which Abraham was instructed to sacrifice his only and beloved son, Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says of this moment that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. He didn't have to go through with it in the end, but he was willing because he trusted that God could set things right somehow. Martha doesn't know how, but she trusts that Jesus and his Father can mend what is broken. Secondly, we see that for a third time in this section of John 11, Jesus does not respond in the way that we might expect. Martha has come to Jesus full of disappointment that he didn't arrive sooner. And we might expect Jesus to correct her. Onlookers at this moment, keep in mind she's outside the house and there are crowds that have come to help uh, grieve and mourn over the loss of Lazarus. There are people present. Onlookers who heard this conversation probably would have expected Jesus to correct her. Ancient gender roles dictated that her approach and her public comments would be seen as unacceptable. Additionally, we have ample precedent in Scripture that God often corrects people when they question him, often with very strong language. When Job asked, why would you allow such turmoil to fall on me? God responds, who is this that darkens my counsel without words of knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you will make it known to me. God brought the hammer down on Job for asking that question. And in the Gospels, when Jesus is first telling his disciples that he will suffer and die, Peter corrects him, saying, this will never happen. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. There is a well-established track record of strong responses when people question God's plans. But Jesus does not respond to Martha that way. Instead, he offers her words of comfort, saying, your brother will rise again. And it's important for us to remember this morning that lament is not sin. Mourning over loss and wishing that it had gone differently is not sin. Martha has joined a long line of people who have encountered the brokenness of this world in a very personal way, and she is not wrong to wish that things were different. She is like the psalmist who wrote, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Something that we need to know that Jesus teaches by the way that he responds to Martha is that it is good to bring our lament and our sadness and our heartbrokenness and our mourning to God. Not to accuse him of wrongdoing or failure, but to look to him as Martha did, as the one who can make things right. And when we do, he answers with words of true comfort. He answers with the gospel. When we bring our sorrows to God, he sets our eyes on the cross and the salvation that we receive at the cross. Martha was heartbroken, and Jesus' response is that there will be restoration. Restoration. 
Her brother will live again. She, like most Jews at the time, understood that there would be a day in the future when all those who have died will rise for judgment. But Jesus is talking about something else. And in the passage we're looking at next week, he'll explain exactly what he means. For now, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is new life for those who believe in him, a life that is unending. And while he is going to physically raise Lazarus from physical death, in the passage we'll look at next week, Jesus says that this promise of resurrection is not just for Lazarus. However, there certainly are a few parallels that we have with Lazarus. For those who believe in physical, uh, who, for those who believe in Jesus, physical death is still an inevitability. But it is not the end of the story. And more subtly, those who believe in Jesus were, like Lazarus, dead and buried before he arrived, cut off from the giver of life and spiritually deceased. Jesus promises resurrection because apart from him, we are, according to the Apostle Paul, dead in our transgression and sin. But, Paul continues in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is the promise of eternity. The Greek words that Jesus uses here are unambiguous. If you were to translate them very literally into English, just word for word, it would say something like, the one who believes, no, never will that one die forever. Jesus is the one who can offer such life because he is the one who willingly takes our place in death. He will raise Lazarus from the grave with a word, but Lazarus will get sick and he will die again someday. For Jesus to solve the problem of death forever, he will accept in our place the guilt that brought death into the world in the first place. Jesus' words to Martha in this conversation are a comfort, a true comfort, because he is the one who can actually heal the pain that she's feeling. And the same is true for each of us. In the fifth of his I am statements in the book of John, Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't merely point people toward what they need. He has come to be what we need. He has come to be one of us and to die as one of us so that he can bring us out of mourning and into joy, out of the grave and into new life. The pain that we face in this life is certainly not trivial. At times, it seems so great that it shakes the whole planet, and in some cases, it actually does. And facing it, we're driven to ask, where else can we go? There is no other hope, no other chance of rescue. And even though our pain may, big, may be big enough to move planets, we have in Jesus a Savior who is big enough to make them and hold them together. Even though death is so final, we have a Savior who is the author of life itself. Where else would we turn but toward the one who is able to make things right, who is the, res the resurrection from this world of death? Jesus is not offering empty condolences to Martha 
but a promise that he will indeed make things right forever for all who believe in him. This passage ends with a question and an answer. Do you believe? It's a simple question, but it carries eternal implications. It is the question that Jesus asks each of us and which shapes how we'll respond to the bitter providences that we will encounter in this life. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he will do what he's promised he'll do, and that by his atoning death in our place and his victory over death, that he will set all things right and secure your life forever? Martha answers, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She doesn't know how, but she trusts that Jesus will make things right. Moments of deep, deep grief in our life will reveal our honest answer to Jesus. Do we believe? Do we trust him with our eternity and with our heartbreak? Do we believe that he is still good and that he is still love even when we suffer? Do we believe that behind a frowning providence there hides a smiling face as we sang a few minutes ago? Do we believe that he is at work for our good and his glory? Years like 2020 force us to answer this question. Do we believe that even as a global pandemic claims hundreds of thousands of lives, wildfires burn vast forests in the western part of our country, systemic racism is uncovered and injustice often goes unchecked, do we believe that even in this, somehow, in some way, God is working to accomplish good? If he can work through the death of Lazarus to reveal his glory, if he can ordain and work through the unjust death of Jesus himself, then why should we doubt that even a year like this could be part of his providential plans, even when they are bitter? We are tempted to think that if God allows, if he ordains things that will make us suffer, then it must mean he does not love us. We will ask, what kind of love is that? And when we do, we must remember the, that God has shown us what love really is, which we see in 1 John chapter 4, in which John records, in this is the love of God. The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Faced with suffering, where else would we go for comfort? Who else could make things right? Who else could redeem all this suffering but the one who suffered himself and died and then conquered the grave? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He brings life to what was dead and sustains it by his grace. Where else can we go but to the one who, by his own suffering, has made a way for us to be eternally free of our own and given in its place life and joy everlasting. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful uh, this morning for your word, grateful for the book of John and the words, these ancient words that give us hope two millennia later. 
Uh, We are reminded nearly every day that the world we live in is broken. Things are not as they should be. On a global scale and in very personal ways, we are reminded every day that things are not the way they should be. We know that we are tempted to turn from that news and, and assume that you must not love us if you would allow these things, if you would ordain these things. So, Lord, we are grateful for John 11, in which you remind us that you are always at work, that these troubles do not overwhelm your love for us or your providential plans for our good, and we lay our heartbreak at your feet and drink deeply from these words as we turn to the cross. You are our Savior, you are our God, and we are your people, and we come before you this morning in the name of your Son. Amen.